Well, I think most of us, at one time or another, have probably read some, some missionary stories and uh, have wondered if we really had the opportunity, if it came down to it, would we actually give up our lives for our faith? Would we go to the guillotine or to the gallows or whatever the case may be and end up paying the ultimate price for our faith? Would we recant our Christian faith in order to continue living? And most of us, assumedly, most of us are probably not going to have to face that decision in our lifetime. But there was a man named Thomas Cranmer who faced that situation twice in his lifetime. He lived in the early 1500s, and if you know anything about church history, the early 1500s was a volatile time, and it was a time when the Protestant Reformation was happening full tilt. And at that time, the choice between being a Catholic and being a Protestant could cost you your life. And it all depended on which religion, which faith your particular, your nation happened to be holding to at that that moment in time. It was really all dependent on which way your government went according to faith at, at that particular moment. And Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, was raised in England and he was raised as a Catholic in England. But he converted to Protestantism and he eventually, very bright guy, rose through the ranks in the church and became the top Protestant churchman in in the whole nation of England. Very, very influential man. And he was under this Protestant king, Edward VI. And it's a really wonderful thing if you're the top churchman and you're under a Protestant king during the Reformation. He had opportunity to reform the church He was able to bring English Bibles into the church and uh, distribute them. Um, He started teaching Protestant doctrine and made that the norm in the land. And that was great for a few years. But Edward was pretty young and unfortunately Edward uh, died at a young age. And when Edward died, a different ruler stepped into place and it was Edward's older sister, Mary. Well, Mary is someone that you've probably heard of. Mary was not a Protestant at all. Far from it. Mary was a very, very dyed-in-the-wool Catholic. And she wasn't just a Catholic. She was very strong, and she actually hated Protestants because different Protestant leaders had declared her illegitimate and had you know, spoken out against her. Uh, and so she held a grudge, and she did not appreciate Protestants very much. And no doubt, many of you have heard of Mary and her reign of terror in England. A lot of the stories of Protestant leaders who who met their demise under Mary are recorded in Fox's Book of Martyrs. And she was so violent in her hatred for Protestant leaders that she earned the nickname Bloody Mary. Well, obviously, once she became the, the, the queen and the leader in England, she arrested Thomas Cranmer. He was very influential, the top Protestant in the land. She had him arrested, but she didn't send him to execution right away. She decided that it would be better to try to convert him because how much better if you can convert the top Protestant in the land. And so every day for three years, she sent Catholic apologists 
into Cranmer's cell and they would argue with him and dispute with him and they would try to convert him and get him to accept Catholic doctrine. Well, at the end of three years, eventually he gave in and he signed the papers saying that Protestant doctrine was wrong and Catholic doctrine was right and he gave in and recanted his faith. Well, unfortunately for Thomas, Mary hated him so much that she decided that even though he recanted, she was going to execute him anyway. And so the day came, they brought him out to the place of execution, and they were going to burn Thomas at the stake. Well, since he had recanted, they decided they were going to let him preach one last sermon and tell everyone about the errors of Protestant doctrine and about his conversion and his recantation and all of that. Well, they let him speak, and unfortunately for Mary, Thomas stood up and gave a sermon saying, confessing all of his sins and saying that signing the papers and recanting his Protestant faith was the worst decision that he had ever made. And of course, the, the, the guards grabbed him and they rushed him over to the, the sticks and to the place where he was going to be burned at the stake. And they tried to shut him up. And right before they put him in the fire, he actually thrust his right hand into the fire, first of all, and said these words. As my hand offended, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall be first be punished. It's really an amazing story, and I think there's something compelling about reading about people's decisive moments, you know, where they have that opportunity to either recant the faith or whether, like Thomas, on the second go-around, he was able to stand strong and not give in and actually make a proclamation for the gospel there right before, before his death. Trials, like what Thomas went through, are really dramatic moments that tell us a lot about a person and they tell us a lot about who that person is. This morning, I want to take you to a place in Scripture that gives us two trials simultaneously happening. And these trials tell us much about the glory of our Savior and they tell us much about human weakness and our need for grace from our Savior. So I want you to open this morning to Mark chapter 14. And we're going to begin at verse 53. Mark 14. Now, as you're opening to Mark, if you've read Mark recently in your devotions or if you're familiar with the book at all, when you get to Mark 14, you probably understand that you are very, very close to the end of the book. There's only a couple pages left, a couple of chapters left. And we find ourselves this morning jumping into the last few hours of the life of Christ. And really, everything in the book of Mark has been pointing toward these moments and has led us up to, to these two trials in a lot of ways. Mark is just an amazing, amazing book. It is, obviously it's in the inspired word of God, but it is a literary masterpiece. Uh, Mark puts the stories together in such a way that is compelling and moving and he presents this picture of Jesus Christ in the first eight chapters of this powerful Messiah who calms storms, casts out demons and heals. And then in the second half of the book, there's this turn and Christ begins predicting 
what's about to happen here in chapter 15. And he, he starts predicting this. And the second half of the book really presents Jesus as a, as a suffering servant. And everything leads up to this point. And in the second half of the book, there's a theme verse, Mark 10:45, And that theme verse tells us what Christ is going to accomplish. And it says that Jesus came to earth in order to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many on behalf of us, in our place, as a sacrificial substitute for, for us. And that's the theme of the whole second half of the book of Mark. Well, when you get to chapter 14, this chapter is the longest chapter in the book of Mark. And this chapter begins in verse 1 on Wednesday of the Passion Week, of the last week of Christ's uh, earthly life here. And this chapter begins there and it moves all the way through Thursday and all the way to the very, very early morning hours on Friday morning, the day of Christ's uh, crucifixion. And as you get to, uh, to Mark 14 and you start reading through it, you see the Passover happening. Um, you see Jesus going out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he, he struggles and he prays. You read about his arrest, Judas's betrayal. And then when you get to verse 53, you're in the last few hours before his death and you find Jesus coming up to the house of the high priest in the darkness in the very, very early morning hours. Now, as we study through this this morning, I just want to make you aware of something before we actually get into the text. It's important when you read the Gospels, just in general, and obviously Mark in particular, But when you read the Gospels, it's so important to understand the authors did not just write random stories down in different places and sort of throw everything together and, you know, pass these books on to us. That's not what happened at all. It's not like they didn't put any thought into how these stories would be structured and ordered. Of course, the, the authors of these Gospels, they faithfully told the stories. But as they faithfully told the stories, they arranged them and they put them in certain order, in a certain order and in certain ways that, that make this material uh, instructive. And we can learn a lot from seeing how, how these stories are arranged here. And so as you study this text that we're going to look at this morning, One of the big things that we need to see together is that Mark purposefully put these two trials that we're going to talk about together because he wants us to contrast Jesus and Peter. And he wants us to contrast the glory of the Savior with human weakness and human need. And so even by the way this material is arranged, Mark is teaching us something about our Savior and about ourselves and about our need for salvation. And so, on the screen, this is what we're going to study this morning, all right? If you're taking notes, this is where we're going. Two trials that contrast Christ's glory and human weakness to showcase God's grace to needy sinners. All right? So we're looking at two trials, and these are two trials that contrast Christ's glory and human weakness. And all of this is for the purpose of showing us that we as sinners need God's grace. 
So let's jump into this first trial here. The trial of Jesus, found in verses 53 to 65, this reveals the glory of Christ. And as we study this this morning, we just want to, we just have a few moments here where we can step aside and we can just marvel at the beauty and the majesty of our Savior. We can just sit here together and enjoy Christ and enjoy who He is. And that's what I want us to do as we look at this text this morning. So, let's jump right in. Verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. So, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. Judas breaks in to the prayer meeting with a horde of soldiers, arrests Jesus, and the soldiers take Jesus directly to the house of the high priest. And this would have been in the middle of the night. Now, the high priest at this time was someone named Caiaphas, and he was a very, very powerful individual. The high priest at this time was a, a religious figure, okay? So he's an important religious figure, in some ways like a Thomas Cranmer type of guy. He's religious, but he's also a very important political figure. Because if you know anything about Israel at this time, they're under the authority and part of the Roman Empire. And so the religious leaders in Israel have to manage relationships with the Roman leaders and with the people. Uh, and so part of the reason that they, were, they want to arrest Jesus is they want to keep this sort of nationalism from happening during the Passover and they want to keep things from going out of control because if the situation gets unruly in Jerusalem, the Roman authorities are going to come in and that's bad news for the high priest and for the religious leaders. And so, believe it or not, you have politicians protecting their own skin here. I know it's hard to imagine, but that's what they're doing here. All right. So they lead the soldiers, take Jesus to the high priest. And there's really a, a large gathering here at the high priest's house. And it's a very, very powerful men. You can see in verse 53 that the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, they're all gathered together at, at Caiaphas's house. Now, if you... Look backwards in your Bible to the first verse of Mark 14. You'll see these same people talked about. And these same people are the ones uh, who are going to, who are in Mark 14, 1, are the ones who are being talked about in, in the end of Mark 14. These are the guys who are after Jesus. Mark 14, 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth, and kill him. So we'll come back to this group in a minute, but I want you to see something in verse 54. All right. So they lead Jesus to the high priest. Mark kind of starts a story there, but then look what he says. He changes the attention from Jesus, and in verse 54, he starts talking about Peter. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now, the reason he mentions that is because if you go back up to verse 50, you can see that when Judas comes, verse 50 says they all left him and fled. And so really what Mark is doing here is he's giving us an update on the disciples, on one in particular, and he's saying that Peter has actually 
followed at a distance. He's trailed after these, uh, these soldiers that have taken Jesus, and he's ended up at the high priest's house. And he's sitting by the fire in the courtyard below. Now, I think Mark tells us this in, in this particular place in the story because Mark wants us to understand that at the same time that Jesus is being questioned upstairs and he's going through his trial, at the same moments, Peter is going to go through a trial of sorts downstairs in the courtyard. And so I think Mark wants you to understand that both of these events are happening at the same time. And he writes this here because he wants us to contrast and to compare what happens here. So keep that in mind and we'll get to Peter a little bit later. Verse 55, all right, back to Jesus. Now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. You can can see up front, this trial is a farce from the very beginning. This is a joke. From the very beginning, they know exactly what they want to do with Jesus. They have their agenda set, and they know that the ultimate goal of this is for Jesus to end up dying. That's their agenda. So the verdict is given here before the charges are even identified. They, they know what they're, they're trying to accomplish, and they just have to find the charges in order to make, that, to make that happen. And if you think about the relationship between Jesus and the religious leaders during his ministry... This really makes sense. If you go all the way back to Mark chapter 3, and why don't you do that? Flip back to Mark chapter 3. At the very beginning of Christ's ministry, you can get sort of a a literary foretaste of what we're reading about in Mark 14. Mark chapter 3, here's what it says. Verse 1, And he entered, Jesus, again into a synagogue, And a man was there whose hand was withered. Verse 2, they were watching him. Obviously, the religious leaders here, if you read the context, they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Even back at this early stage, they have their agenda set for Jesus. He said to the man with the withered hand, verse 3, get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Amazing miracle. The the religious leaders witnessed this, and then look what happens in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him, as to how they might destroy him. Unbelievable. Even at this early stage, they witness a miracle, and their response is, we have got to kill that guy. Well, if you flip back over to Mark chapter 14, obviously you can see that played out here. They did not want a conversation. They were not interested in finding out more about Jesus. They were not looking at engaging in a discussion with him They want to kill him. That's the agenda. That's the goal up front. And here in chapter 14, they finally have him. They have him exactly where they want him. 
The moment has come and they are determined that they are not going to let this guy who has caused them so much trouble slip away. It's not going to happen. Well, here's the problem for them. They're Jews, religious leaders who obey the law and a capital punishment, putting a a prisoner to death requires at least two witnesses and the testimony of those two witnesses has to agree with one another. You can't just put somebody to death under the Jewish system. You have to have two witnesses. So they have quite a problem. Verse 55 and 56. Look with me. You saw in verse 55, they're not finding any testimony. Verse 56 explains what's going on. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. And so, under Jewish law, if your testimony, if the testimony of your witnesses isn't consistent, then it has to be thrown out. It's not permissible in court. And so they're trying to, it's so odd, I mean, we understand why it happens, but they're trying to maintain the appearance of following the law and of doing the right thing, but at the same time, they're, they're lying and they're cheating the system and they're about to condemn an innocent man to death. So the first go-around fails in verse 56, so they try something else. Verse 57, Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Now, there are a couple things we need to notice about this statement. First of all, if you read the book of Mark, we don't have anything like this said by Jesus in the book of Mark. However, you do read statements like this in other Gospels. So apparently, Jesus had actually said something like this. So if Jesus said this, how was this false testimony? Well, I think what's going on here is the accusers had evidently missed the purpose of what Jesus was saying. They didn't understand. He wasn't talking about the the physical temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body, dying and giving up his body, and then a new temple, the church, coming into existence through the sacrifice of his body. So they missed that, and they accused him of falsehood. But it doesn't really matter because, look at verse 59. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. So, these guys are really having trouble here. The the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, this council of, of leaders in Israel, really having trouble pinning this guy down and finding the charges that they need in order to get the sentence that they've already decided is going to happen. So, it's at this point that something pretty dramatic happens in the trial. Maybe it's because of frustration. Things aren't going the way that he would like them to go. The high priest, maybe because of that, the high priest stands up, moves toward Jesus in dramatic fashion, and begins to personally interrogate the prisoner in front of him. Look at verse 60. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? 
Now, he asks that question, and it makes it pretty clear that Jesus had been silent during this whole, all these false accusations. Basically, he had just been standing there listening and had not responded at all. He hadn't been defending himself. He hadn't explained himself. He'd been standing there quietly. And in some ways, it makes sense, right? I mean, if they've already decided they're going to put you to death, what's the point of responding? But when you read verse 60 and verse 61, the beginning of it, it says, but he kept silent and did not answer. When you read that, now I want you to listen to Isaiah 53 and verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And because of Jesus' silence, the high priest now standing in the midst of this august gathering of Jewish religious leaders and face-to-face with Jesus and questioning him, the high priest goes for the jugular here in verse 61. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, there's something that you may not pick up in there when you read it just off the cuff there. The way this is actually structured in the original language is the word you goes at the very front. All right. And so the high priest is really asking Jesus for his own self-assessment. He's saying, you, who are you? If you put it in a question form. But if you read this and just read it through without any voice inflection without adding a questioning voice inflection on it, here's what the high priest actually says. You are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. And of course, he's asking the question, but it's such an ironic statement here that the the head religious leader in Israel actually comes out here and makes this statement before all the other key religious leaders in Israel. It's also ironic here that in his statement, he calls God the Father, the Blessed One. He doesn't even use his name because he's trying to honor God's name. He's trying to remain pure and not speak the name of God. And yet, God the Son is standing right in front of him. And he fails to recognize this one standing in front of him. So when we get to a question like this, I think we have to ask ourselves, what brings up this question? Why does he ask this here? What's, what's behind this? I mean, they've been trying to bring accusations against Jesus. The accusations haven't been sticking. And here he goes for the jugular. He goes for the heart of the issue and he asks this question And I think he probably had meditated on this question. And this is what he wanted to know. This gets to the center of the issue. And we want to find out what led him to ask this question here. Well, Jesus had claimed to forgive sins in his ministry. He had fed the masses through miracles. He'd healed many people. He'd cast out demons. He'd answered the religious leaders wisely in the temple during this Passion Week. He told a parable in Mark chapter 12 that indicted the religious leaders 
and basically proclaimed him, himself as the, the beloved son of the father. And at the end of that parable, listen to what Mark says about the religious leader's response. They were seeking to seize him, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they've got some inkling of Jesus' ambitions, and here the high priest steps up in the middle of all of them and asks this very poignant question to Jesus. Now, shockingly enough, Jesus responds. Verse 62, And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Early on in the book of Mark, Jesus would quiet the demons who were proclaiming who he was. But that secret gets blown out of the water here. And it's important that you know the response of Christ here is not just sort of random words put together. The reason we read those two passages this morning, you might have been like, why Psalm 110 and Daniel 7? The reason we read those is because what Jesus says here is a combination of both of those passages. Listen to Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then listen to Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 again. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Wow. And here's the thing. These passages, I mean, these are Jewish religious leaders. They knew their Old Testament. These would have been very familiar passages to the Sanhedrin, to all of the men in that room, and particularly to the high priest who was face-to-face with Jesus at this moment. And in their Old Testament context, both of these passages look forward to the day of Israel's redemption. Both of these passages see the nation of Israel having been exiled from the land, and they see Israel as back in the land. Jews at this time were back in the land, but the expectation was, and the the understanding was, the return from exile is not really complete yet. Things haven't really been fully restored yet. That's how the Sanhedrin would have understood this, and that's how most Jews would have understood this. They were still under foreign oppression from the Romans. And if you remember in the Old Testament, the glory of God had departed from the temple and it hadn't returned. So the people are still expecting and still looking for God, Yahweh, to intervene in the nation. And these two passages expect that and look forward to that. And so when Jesus says this here and quotes these two passages... What he's basically saying, I am the fulfillment of Israel's hopes. All the promises and expectations in the Old Testament that you guys know so well have looked forward to me and my day. 
He's saying Christ is here that the decisive moment in Israel's history is upon them with his arrival. And he's essentially saying that those who oppose him, like the Sanhedrin, are the enemies of Yahweh. You can imagine how that went over to this group. Verse 63. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? This here is a a formal rendering of judgment, if you will. They understand exactly what Jesus has just said. And here, the trial essentially comes to a close. Because at this point, they don't need witnesses. They've heard what he said. They understand that he's claiming to be the center and the hope of Israel's history. And here's the crazy thing. They don't even stop for one second to consider that what he says might actually be the case. What if this is true? What if he is the center and the hope of all of our holy books in the Old Testament? What if this really is the one who is to come? The seed who will crush the head of the serpent. The promised descendant of Abraham. The Davidic king. What if this is really him? They don't even consider that option. Look at verse 64. You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And the group as a whole responds. And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. They all agree on the matter. And so in verse 65, some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. They don't do this in order to inflict pain to bring him to the point of death. They do this to shame him because they understand what he's just said and what he's just claimed. And so in this amazing trial that we see here, we really see the fullness of who Jesus is. His understanding that he is the center. He is the expectation of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment. And he willingly endures this rejection, mockery, and shaming in order to give his life as a ransom for many. And that brings us to our second trial, in contrast to what we've just seen. The second trial, the trial of Peter, reveals the human need of grace. The trial of Peter reveals the human need of grace. So, during the same time frame that this is happening upstairs, the same time that Jesus is being accused Down below, Peter is being questioned. And so the high priest's house would have had a a large upper room, and then down below would have been a pretty extensive courtyard, and soldiers and servants and other people would have gathered there, especially late in the evening like this, when a key prisoner is upstairs. And so look what happens to Peter in verse 66 and 67. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. So Peter's out here trying to be inconspicuous, hanging out by the fire, trying to see what's going to happen. And this little servant girl spies him. And we think, it's not really abundantly clear, but it seems like she came over next to him, probably sat down beside him, 
and didn't make a public announcement at first. She maybe even whispered to him and said, weren't you with Jesus? Weren't you with the guy upstairs? Wasn't that you? Look how Peter reacts to that in verse 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. He's pretty dogmatic here. For this little servant girl to ask him this question, he's pretty pretty dogmatic, pretty riled up about it. Basically says, I don't even know what you're talking about. This makes no sense to me. Get away from me. I don't want to talk about this anymore. And in order to avoid further confrontation, he gets up and he heads to the edge of the courtyard, probably just outside where the firelight can be seen, sort of slumps off in the darkness there, hoping to avoid further confrontation. Now, when you read this, the contrast between Jesus and Peter couldn't be more obvious here. Jesus has just been questioned by the most powerful ruler in the land, and he stands firm. And and Peter here is questioned by a servant girl who her social standing wouldn't have mattered at all. I mean, honestly, who, who cares what this servant girl thinks? I mean, that is really what everyone would have said. It doesn't matter what she thinks. It doesn't matter what, what response she gives to who you are. Jesus was in front of the entire Sanhedrin. Peter is privately questioned by a servant girl here, and he denies Christ. Things get more difficult for Peter. Verse 69. The servant girl saw him. Remember, he's out on the outer edge. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. So a little bit of time elapses. Maybe she's walking around doing her duties and she sees him again. And now she wants to bring other people in on it. And so she she says, hey, doesn't this guy look like one of the people that was with Jesus? I can only imagine how annoying this must have been for Peter at this moment. This pesky little twerp will not leave me alone here. All right. So he's very frustrated and he flat out denies it in verse 70. But again, he denied it. Now, when he speaks publicly there, everybody hears his voice. And the thing about Galilee is there's a pretty strong accent coming from Galilee, apparently. Like if you're from Wisconsin, everybody knows, right, when you speak. And so everybody is able to recognize here that that he's from Galilee. And look what they say. And after a little while, verse 70, while the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. They're putting the pieces together, and the group consensus here is that Peter was with Jesus. The crowd is beginning to turn against Peter. Look what happens and how Peter responds in verse 71. But he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you are talking about. He gets really aggressive here to try to get them off of his back. And the way it describes it here is that he actually didn't curse himself. He brought curses down on on Christ. He began to curse and to swear at Jesus. And he began to make an oath and say, I I promise, I make an oath that I don't know this man. He is very, very aggressive with his denial and with his response here. He actually calls damnation out on Christ in this moment in order to try to get these people off of his back. 
He feels the pressure closing in and he feels like he's got to do something. And then you get to verse 72 and I think these are some of the saddest words in all of Scripture. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times and he began to weep. Man. This brings a rush of memories back to Peter's mind. If you go back in chapter 14, there's this moment in time where Jesus tells the disciples that they're all going to fall away, and Peter responds and say, hey, they may all fall away, but I am here to stay to the very end. I am with you, and even if I have to go to the death, I'm going to remain with you. And these words, this rooster crows, and Peter hears this, And I'm sure it made him nauseous to think about how overconfident and arrogant he had been with Christ. And now he understands that the one who had invested in him for three years, the one who had done all these miracles, who Peter himself had seen transfigured, who Peter had declared to be the Messiah, all of that in the background, Peter understands that he has denied this one denied him after being questioned by a servant girl. So Peter rushes out of the courtyard and just, I can imagine, just begins to sob and weep over what he has done, over denying his Savior in this moment. I cannot imagine what he went through. I'm sure he felt worthless. I'm sure he felt unusable. I mean, he heard those words that he had spoken in his mind of arrogance and confidence. He heard that. And now a servant girl has rattled him to the point where he is willing to deny the faith. I mean, what happened after this? Did Peter go back to the disciples? Did he tell them what had happened? I can only imagine the next day when Jesus is crucified and he dies what Peter's thoughts were in those moments. I mean, he had denied him, and and now Christ goes to the cross. But I want you to notice something about this whole situation. Back in Mark 14, in verse 28, when Jesus predicts that Peter will cave and will give in, Jesus says something that Peter probably missed the first time around. Verse 28, But after I have been raised... I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And I don't think Peter probably remembered that at all during these next couple of days. And after Mark 14 and Mark 15, you read about Christ's uh, trial before Pilate, you read about his death, and we don't hear anything else about Peter. And you may be wondering, as you're reading this through, what happens to Peter? How does this resolve for him? We'll go forward to Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, and you get this really short account of Christ's resurrection. And as these women go into the tomb, there's a young man sitting there, an angelic figure. And look what happens in verse 6. And he said to them, Do not be amazed, for you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. And then I... This is some of the most grace-filled, encouraging words to me in Scripture. Verse 7. 
but go tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. Now you know that Mark wrote this book, the Gospel of Mark, based on Peter's testimony. These stories come from Peter. And so, when you see this here, it's an unbelievable remembrance from Peter of the absolute grace of Christ in his life. I mean, he had fallen hard in a public way, but the grace of Christ was magnificently kind in the midst of that. And it's no wonder that Peter responded the way that he did, right? I mean, just a couple of months later, you have him standing up at Pentecost, preaching boldly. You have him willing to go to prison. You have an amazing ministry that takes place through him, through the power of Christ, after this very public and very hard fall that he experienced. This propelled him forward to service. This and Peter. Tell Peter. Make sure that the word gets to Peter, that I've risen just as I promised I would. Now here's the thing as we finish up. Some people think that if you speak too much of God's unconditional grace and unmerited kindness in the gospel, that people will have no reason to not sin. They will just continually give themselves to sin because, hey, Jesus loves me anyway. So what does it matter? Well, there was a pastor that lived several hundred years ago by the name of John who dealt with this all the time. John wrote a little book that you may know, Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan is his name. And John loved to preach the unconditional grace of Christ. And there were people who would say, you know, John, you shouldn't do that because people, if you preach the assuring love of Christ, if you keep telling people that God's love for them will never fail, no matter what they do, then they're going to do whatever they want. And here's the way John Bunyan responded to that. If I assure God's people of His love, then they will do whatever He wants. And no doubt, Peter experienced that in a very powerful, in a very real way way. So here's the thing about these two trials as we close. Jesus went through the first and gave himself to death in order to save and to redeem arrogant, needy, pompous sinners like Peter and like you and like me. That's why he endured.